Hey team, welcome to this edition of the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. This is a podcast where we talk to cool people doing cool things. These people are helping to inspire us to get out of our comfort zones through the stories and ideas that they have. They let us know that it's okay to be uncomfortable, and actually we get so much from these times that we do get uncomfortable. This is episode 17, and I'm your host Chris Desmond. Today I'm having a chat with Richard McChesney. If you guys had a listen to episode 4 of the podcast where I chat with Quentin Rue, you'll be familiar with the sport of race walking. Uh, and on a side note, congratulations to Quentin for his fantastic efforts in the 50k race walk at the Rio Olympics. Richard's also a race walker, but he's a long distance race walker. Now, you might be saying to yourself, that 50k is plenty long enough for a walk, but Richard routinely walks 100km races. He's walked around the M25 motorway around London and competed in a three-day race walk in France, breaking the New Zealand record for the furthest distance walked in 48 hours in the process. He's going back to France later this year to compete in the six-day event. So today we chat through some of Richard's walking adventures and the challenges that he's faced walking such distances. We also talk about what he's learnt about himself and about life as a result of uh, all his walking adventures. As well as being pushing the boundaries as a walker, Richard also helped out with the audio side of things for our chat. I was having some problems with the software I was using, so Richard stepped up to the plate and uh, recorded things from his end. So as a result, I might sound a little bit crackly today, uh, but hopefully that's okay, because Richard's the one that's generating all the wisdom here for us. I want to say thanks to my brother Jeremy Desmond for doing the music for the show, a big thanks to Paul for his review on iTunes, and Marcio for the feedback as well. And as always, a big thanks to you guys for taking the time out of your days to get uncomfortable with me and Richard. If you enjoy what you hear, remember to share it out and get in contact with me to give me some feedback. Cheers, guys. So Richard, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is OK podcast. It's good to connect with you today, uh, despite the, the slight audio difficulties that we've had to start with. Yeah, thank you. But I think that's probably what, what makes these situations slightly more uncomfortable as well, is, uh, is battling with these challenges. So it's been, it's been good, and thanks for your, uh, your technical know-how helping out. And the fact that we're recording this on my computer rather than yours. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Brilliant. So, Richard, can you give me and the listeners a little bit of background about yourself, um, sort of where you're, where you're from, where you are now? Okay. Um, so, I'm originally from Parapram in New Zealand, um, uh, born and bred in Parapram, moved into Wellington when I left school and lived there pretty much through um, Wellington and Lower Hutt until I moved to London initially in 2008. And then we had three years over in London, came back to New Zealand for a couple of years, and then we moved back to London in 2014, and that's where I am now. 
and from a, a sporting background point of view I took up running when I was a kid probably 15 years old or thereabouts and was a reasonably good runner um, but uh, you know not not international level um, I had one um, uh, race where I represented Wellington in a cross-country race won the Wellington Marathon in 1995 but uh, I um, was always injured um, struggled with injury right from when I was um, a teenager right through pretty much until um, uh, when I started race walking which was 2012 what happened was um, I basically uh, decided I wanted to push myself further and further and I got into doing ultra distance ru- uh, running did a couple hundred kilometer races um, not you know very well um, my fastest 100k as a runner was um, maybe 11 hours 11 and a quarter hours something like that but one day I was doing a race um, well I was actually living in the UK but I was back in New Zealand for work and I was running the um, Hutt River Ultra I can't remember exactly what the name of it is but it goes from Cross Creek over in Featherston over the Rimutakas and finishes down in Petone and um, in that race there was a guy walking and I actually won the uh, the race as a runner, but I couldn't believe how fast this guy was walking. It's a guy by the name of Andrew Shelley, and I got to know him after a little while. And um, a few months later, I was injured and I couldn't run. And I uh, decided, you know, I'll get this race walking a go. And that was 2010, I think. But I got over my injury. I started running again. And um, then in 2012, I was again injured, living back in New Zealand at that stage. And was actually entered in a marathon and I really wanted to do this particular marathon but couldn't run so I thought well it's time to start walking again and so I um, went for a walk one weekend and then the next weekend I walked the marathon and actually did okay there was quite a few walkers in it and um, I walked about five and a quarter hours finished third um, and been hooked on walking ever since. Fantastic. Richard um, quick question for you though is why did you want to go long why did you want to kind of keep pushing your body and into some of those those big distances was there a kind of a drive for it or, or it was just kind of the next thing that you that you wanted to do even as a runner I always wanted to just see you know how far I could push myself um, back as a probably 12 or 13 year old um, one summer holidays a mate of mine and I decided we were going to cycle from Parapram up to Lake Taupo and back um, it was about 300 kilometres each way and, and from memory we took three or four days to cycle up and um, it was a day less going back because we had tailwind most of the way coming home <laughs> and that was probably my first sort of um, experience with um, pushing the boundaries and becoming uncomfortable because I, I definitely wasn't fit enough to cycle you know, 100 kilometres a day as a 12 or 13 year old might have been a little bit older, might have been 14 uh, as a runner, I actually gave up running for um, 10 years between uh, um, roughly 1996 and 2006. Um, had a family, started a business and you know, sort of had other priorities. And then when I came back to running in 2006, I discovered I was a lot slower than I used to be. And that's when I went from being a, um, a reasonably good half marathon and marathon runner to becoming an ultra runner. Um, and I just got hooked on it. I loved the you know, idea of going out and running for six hours on a Saturday morning um, and you know, really just pushing the boundaries. And so when I started race walking, um, I don't have any speed um, you know, relative to the elite um, walkers. You know, Quentin Rue would beat me over 50k by two hours probably, um, probably more actually. Um, so I decided, well, you know, let's go and 
push the boundaries of walking. And um, over here in the UK, there's actually quite a big, um, uh, well, even in Europe, there's quite a big um, long-distance race walking scene. Um, I've, I'm doing a race this coming weekend, actually, where there's 50 uh, participants walking over 100 miles. Um, I go to Europe, uh, to France, and do a lot of racing over there, where there's an average um, uh, starting field of 100 or even more um, race wow. walkers. Whereas in New Zealand, the one uh, big race I've done in New Zealand was um, on a track in 2013, my first 24-hour race, and I think there might have been three or four. I think there were four race walkers in that um, that particular race. So, you know, once I got over here and realised that it was quite a big um, community, um, it helped me fall in love with the the idea of walking as far as I can. Why do you think the community is bigger in the UK? Is it just purely population-based, or is it just kind of a different attitude towards it? I think it's mainly population-based, but there is uh, you know, a long history of um, race walking um, in both the UK and Europe. Um, if you, you know, go through back, back through the um, uh, history books or even just Google uh, race walking, you'll go right back and find that you know there's been long-distance race walking races um, in the UK going back well over 100 years. Uh, there's a, um, I don't know what you call it, a group, uh, for want of another word, of um, people that are what they call centurions, which is if you've walked 100 miles in a certified race, in less than 24 hours. So when I did that in New Zealand in 2013, I became the 19th person to ever do that in New Zealand. When I did it in 2014 in the UK, I became the 1131st person to do it in the UK. Wow. So there's a bit of a difference. And then recently I did it in Holland, became the 432nd person to do that in Holland. Um, so, but you know, that is definitely more population based than, than anything I'd imagine. Okay. Cool. That was sorry. That was just a, a purely interest question from me. What I wanted to ask you about, though, is in the not too uh, not too distant past, you've walked the the M25 as well. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that and uh, sort of why you decided to do it, and and then kind of what happened when you did? Okay. So so firstly, the M25 motorway is the motorway that circles London. Which you know, might not sound like much, but London's a huge area, and the motorway itself is 165 miles as a loop uh, around London. And obviously, you can't walk on a motorway. So actually, the motorway is less than 165 miles, but to walk on around the outskirts of that on what they call the A and the B roads, which are the smaller um, you know, roads that you can walk or cycle on, is 165 miles. I don't know, when, when we first moved over here in 2008 and I um, uh, heard about this you know, huge motorway, I thought, well, you know, there's a, there's a goal. <laughs> um, a little bit like um, Edmund Hillary, you know, there's that big mountain called Mount Everest, well, there's a, there's a goal. <laughs> so um, I always had the idea that it'd be neat to do something, whether it was to run around it or cycle around it or something. And um, then, I, as I say, I got into race walking. I um, decided why not um, give it a shot and I thought well I will do it over the summer over here sort of May, June, July time um, this year but uh, I've done a little bit of um, charity uh, fundraising as well and I thought there's a, a big um, charity event over here every two years called Sports Relief where people do all sorts of different sports challenges to raise money and they raise 
millions, I can't think of the number, but millions and millions of pounds. And so I thought, well, okay, we'll do this walk in March. I'll raise some money for Sport Relief, which is an organisation that then donates that money to lots of other charities to raise, uh, you know, charities for all sorts of um, underprivileged people within the UK, but also in other um, third world countries as well. So it was a great cause. Um, and I thought, well, you know, why not do my M25 walk to raise money? I guess that you know probably answers your question is you know what what the M25 walk was all about and why I did it. Um, what I didn't realise at the time is how different it is to do something um, that isn't an organised event. So everything I'd done up to then, and I think I'd done around about nine or ten um, hundred mile uh, walks or longer, but they'd all been organised races where you just turn up, you pay entry fee, turn up and either walk laps of a track or from point A to point B or something like that. Um, whereas this, I actually had to um, you know, work out what my route was, um, which I used Google Maps to, um, well actually I used a, um, a system called, a website called Map My Run, um, which uses Google Maps. And I just plotted out the area that I wanted to walk by saying I want to, to walk on the roads but not the motorways. And um, so that gave me a rough guide as where I was going to walk. And then we printed off uh, pages and pages of these maps that I carried to, you know, hopefully show me the way and tell me what corners to take. I had to organise a support team because the idea was I was going to try and walk this um, 165 miles non-stop in under 48 hours. But I didn't want to be stopping at shops to buy food along the way. And, you know, if something went, went wrong, I would need someone, you know, there to, to assist. So I organised a couple of friends that were going to take turns at driving or cycling beside me or walking beside me as they ended up doing. And there's just a lot of organisation involved, a lot more than I thought. How long did it take for you to organise it? I su- suggest that I probably decided around about January, maybe December, that I was going to do this walk in March. And I spent a lot of my spare time during that time organising it. Also. Right from when I decided to do it, I started promoting the walk that it was going to be for uh, charity. And again, you know, if you go and do your own thing, you don't normally, you know, spend a whole lot of time promoting it. But I wanted to raise money. I set a goal last year. I had um, done another walk and I had raised, I think it was £1,100. So I wanted to beat that. And I also had the thought that last year, I had set a target of a thousand pounds and I raised 1100 and I thought well I'm going to set a high goal so as if people you know go to my uh, donation page and see that um, you know I'm way short of it hopefully they'll donate, donate more rather than saying I'd already met my goal and donate less so I set a goal of raising 5000 pounds knowing that you know if I raised 2000 I'd be wrapped and um, so every second or third day I'd, I'd be promoting that on Facebook and Twitter and various other places um, uh, I would say, yeah, three months of every you know, couple of days, I'd do something relating to the organisation, whether it was mapping it out, sorting out things with my support team. I also found a little bit of sponsorship through um, Fitbit. Uh, they um, gave me some prizes that I could use to encourage donations. So, yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of my spare time, as well as you know, doing my normal training, and you know, I work a full-time job as well. I spent a lot of my spare time um, after hours just organising things. Cool. And besides the support crew supporting you on the day, did you have have people helping you out with the organisational side of things? I'm sure I did, um, but off the top of my head, I can't think of any specific instances <laughs> relating to that. Um, but I wouldn't want to take all the credit for um, for organising it because um, I'm sure there were um, you know, other people 
that um, you know, helped me and definitely the, the people that were in my support crew were really helpful uh, not necessarily with the organisation but just giving me um, you know, ideas of what I should be doing to, to help you know, make things a bit smoother during the actual weekend of the event and did most people that you told about it, Richard, were they quite, uh, they understood what you wanted to, to do with it or they just kind of turned around and said, why the hell are you going to do that? Whenever you do fundraising, it's always slow to start off with and it gathers momentum and then during the actual event, um, you know, it gathers more momentum. The sport relief is you know, really highly promoted over here and we have you know, celebrities that do all sorts of sporting challenges and they raise millions, whereas someone that you know, is unknown, such as myself, my target was a fraction of that. So people knew about sport relief. And then when I said I'm going to walk around the M25 to raise money for sport relief, you know, it was kind of, oh, yeah, it was just another sporting challenge, you know. <laughs> people weren't too surprised. I um, remember on, I think it was around about the Thursday, maybe the Wednesday before I did the walk, and the walk started on the Friday afternoon, I sent an email to everyone at work, and I, I work in a fairly large um, company here in, in London, and I got a huge response. I couldn't believe how many people donated that day and and just over the next couple of days there were people from work. And then when I came back um, to work, a lot of people were asking me um, you know, how the walk went. Some of them you know, knew that I walked these ridiculous distances. Some didn't have a clue. Um, but as a result, I, I guess I've uh, you know um, been quite surprised at you know how much interest there was in it and the walk itself. Fantastic. And did you hit your uh, your five thousand pound target? No. Um, in the end, I raised fifteen hundred pounds, which that's I'm, good. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not definitely not disappointed with because at the end of the day, you know, charities need every you know, every penny they can get, um, and it was more than what I'd raised the previous year for another charity. I um, you know now sort of set a goal that every year I'm going to do a charity walk of some kind, and hopefully every year I'm going to raise a little bit more than I did the previous year. Yeah, cool. That's a that's a great way to approach it, I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, there there would be the opportunity to kind of get disappointed that you that you didn't hit that five thousand target. But as you said, it was a it's a kind of a big audacious goal, um, and that you would would have been happy with a smaller amount. But that's uh, that's very cool. So Richard, if we if we kind of talk a little bit about the actual physical act of of the walk um so can you can you talk us through that a little bit and about just kind of how you how you started off with that and then uh kind of just yeah go into a little bit of detail about kind of yep. what you what you experienced on the walk absolutely um for those people that do know um, the London area and know the M25 um, there's a bridge called the Dartford Crossing and so I decided that was and that crosses the Thames down sort of like the bottom right um, corner of the M25 and I decided that was the ideal place to start the walk especially once I found out that you're not actually allowed to walk across the walk or cycle across it's only for vehicles um, so I figured that I would start the walk on the um, western side of the um, Dartford Crossing and I'd walk around the bottom of the M25, um, up around the top, and then back down the eastern side, finishing on the other side of the bridge, hopefully within 48 hours. So I met a friend of mine, Sarah, who was going to be my support crew for the first for the Friday, through to sort of you know Friday evening, and then she was going to join me again on Saturday morning, and then I was going to have some more friends join me on Saturday afternoon. So I met her at um, at the Dartford Bridge. 
and we set off. Uh, it was a really nice day. It was actually winter, not been. We hadn't had a bad winter over here, but it hadn't been um, fantastic weather either going into the early spring. And this was the first day that I'd actually worn a t-shirt when I'd been out training. Up until then, it had been cold enough that you had to wear, you know, polypropyl or at least a long sleeve t-shirt. So it was a beautiful sunny day. Set off at 2:30. I got lost within, I don't know three or four kilometres, um, ended up in this little housing estate that I shouldn't have ended up in. And that kind of set the, the scene for the weekend. I, I continually got lost. Um, my map reading skills aren't the best um, at, anyway, but um, you know, when you get tired, it's even more difficult to read a map. So we walked through, Sarah supported me, feeding me every half hour, so she'd drive ahead you know, sort of three or four kilometres, wait for me to come past, give me some food leapfrog me, uh, wait again for me to catch up and then give me some more food and that worked really well um, through until probably about 8pm so I'd done about 6 hours at that stage, it got dark um, she had other things that she had to do Friday night and so she met me and gave me my overnight gear which um, you know consisted, it was going to be a reasonably cold night so she gave me my rain jacket and some other stuff that I was going to need plus all the food that I was going to need to support myself through the night uh, then she disappeared and um, I started walking into the night. Really enjoyed it, still getting lost occasionally. And I remember um, I got to, and I have no idea what time, I think it was around 3 o'clock in the morning. It was getting really cold actually, and I remember um, uh, either before or after this incident at 3 in the morning trying to have a drink of Coke, and my hands were shaking so much from the cold that I just tipped my can of Coke down my front and didn't reach my mouth. And that, as I'm going to explain further on really caused me problems just getting so cold on the Friday night um, I never warmed up again and I really struggled for the whole weekend but I remember about three in the morning um, I was having to cross the A3 uh, which is a smaller motorway well, that's the A3 is not a motorway as such but it's a, a fairly major road and definitely a, a road that you wouldn't be able to walk across um, on the actual road itself um, during daytime and but there was a bridge that I was going to a footbridge that I was going to go across and when I got to the A3, I was about 100 metres down the road from this footbridge, and I couldn't work out how to get from there back onto the footbridge. But fortunately, at 3 in the morning, there's not a lot of traffic, so I decided I'd climb the barrier to get onto the road, climb the median strip in the middle, walk across the other side, and then um, climb the barrier, and then clamber up a bank, which I did. And there were probably about three four cars that passed me during that time that I had to you know, make sure they weren't going to hit me. Um, but once I got up the bank, I was still about you know, 20 or 30 metres from this footbridge, and in theory, if I'd gone over the footbridge, my map said go straight ahead for maybe 100 metres and then turn left, and I have no idea what happened, but I spent quarter of an hour, maybe half an hour, in this forest of trees, um, <laughs> uh, which you can imagine at three in the morning, um, admittedly we had good moonlight, but I was getting a little bit concerned as to how I was going to get out of this forest. <laughs> um, Covered in cook. Yeah, eventually I, f I found my way out. Uh, everything went well. Um, one of the roads I was due to go down a few hours later turned out that it was a private road with gates, and at that time of the, the night the gates are locked, so you can't actually walk down there, so Google Maps were not perfect. But that was all okay. And then I remember about, I don't know, 6 in the morning perhaps, my wife rang me on my cell phone to just find out how I was going. 
And I responded, I'm in a hospital. And what I meant was I'm lost in the grounds of a hospital. But the way it came out is, oh, shit, what's happened? Um, you know, why am I in a hospital? So I quickly explained, no, I'm, it's nothing to worry about. I'm just you know, lost in the grounds of this hospital. So, yeah, I mean, you can see from, uh, from you know, what I've just explained, I was getting lost all the time. And so my idea of walking 165 miles was it's going to be longer than that by the time I finished. But it was good. I really enjoyed it. Um, Saturday, Sarah joined me probably eight o'clock-ish and gave me breakfast and um, then started leapfrogging me again, just uh, driving a few kilometres up the road and giving me more food. I was really cold, though, even though it was probably starting to warm up Saturday morning. I kept my rain jacket on through until early afternoon. I just couldn't warm up. And um, then at that stage, I had a few other friends join me. I had a, a running friend of mine who, who runs ultramarathons join me for a while. Um, Louise, she walked probably two hours with me. Um, then another um, race walking friend of mine, Suzanne, and her partner Jim joined. And that then worked out really well because I have no idea what time of the afternoon that was, but it was probably one, two, three in the afternoon. From then for the rest of the, for the next 12 hours, um, I either had Suzanne or Sarah walking with me the whole way, um, and they did the map reading, so I, I stopped getting lost. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that was really good. My goal, I said um, at the start, um, that my goal was to walk non-stop in 48 hours, and by non-stop I meant I didn't want to sit down for the whole of that 48 hours. Basically I was on my feet and walking forwards or standing still and looking at a map, but I was on my feet for the whole um, uh, of the um, the walk until um, 32 hours into the into the race to the race into the walk when I just I was absolutely exhausted and I had to lie down and um, I caught up with uh, the car that Jim was driving and ended up having to sleep in the back of the car for 15 minutes I told um, told my support team to wake me in 15 minutes because I want you know, didn't want to sleep for too long but really it was the beginning of the end I, I was just it was getting cold again I was mentally exhausted I um, just you know, couldn't face the idea of, of continuing to, to walk for, you know, I don't know how much distance we still had to go at that stage, but a very long way. And, and I knew there was no way I was going to um, to finish in daylight during the Sunday. But we kept walking and I lasted another two and a half hours. 1am on Saturday morning, we decided we'd pull the plug. And at that stage, I was at 190 kilometres of what I expected to be roughly a 275 kilometre walk, 165 miles. And we pulled the plug. I just, I was going so slow um, that, you know, it could have been another 20 hours or more that before I was going to finish. So we were up in this place called South Mins, which is sort of up around the top of the M25. And it turned out that there was a um, budget hotel nearby um, that Jim decided would go and stay at. And um, I was asleep within minutes. Uh, I was just exhausted. We booked a couple of rooms there. We um, slept the night and uh, following morning, my wife rang and said she'll come and collect me rather than Jim having to drop me back home. So we had breakfast. I think I had McDonald's or, or something like that for breakfast from memory. My wife came and collected me, took me home, and I sort of you know rested on the couch, watched a bit of TV, had a good night's sleep Sunday night. And I'd actually booked Monday off work to, um, I figured that I was going to need a, a recovery day, even though I was aiming to finish on Sunday. I thought I'll have a recovery day before going back to work on the Tuesday. So I'd booked Monday off work. Monday morning, I'm sitting having breakfast downstairs at about, um, I don't know, nine-ish perhaps. My wife came down, she works from home, came downstairs and I said, oh, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I'm thinking of um, going and completing this walk. And I was kind of half hoping that she would say, no, that's a dumb idea. 
Um, but she said, yeah, I think you should. <laughs> and yeah, she says, I think you should go and complete it. Um, you'll, you, know, you won't forgive yourself if you, if you don't. And also, remember, I was doing this for charity and um, we had some uh, prizes to help people, encourage people to make donations. Fitbit had, uh, were sponsoring the prizes. So the idea was people made a donation and then they could guess how many steps my whole walk would take. Um, and the closest uh, person guessing would um, would win a Fitbit. So I figured I had to finish it because um, otherwise we wouldn't know how many steps it takes to walk around the M25. So I decided right, I'll take the car back to where I'm going to finish on the other side of the Dartford Bridge and then I'll catch the train up to um, where we'd stopped in South Minns and then I'll um, you know, walk the rest of the way. And I honestly thought that you know if I started sort of mid-afternoon because by the time I got everything organised and got back up to South Mins, it would be early afternoon. I thought I'd be able to finish sometime between 2 and 4 in the morning on the Tuesday morning, get home, have a bit of a sleep, um, and then go off to work. And I was actually due to see a client in North London on the Tuesday. I ended up starting the walk at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and about 7 o'clock that night I was talking to my wife on the phone. All was going really well. I was, I was quite happy. I was perhaps going a little bit slower than I thought, but... You know, considering what I'd done over the previous you know, part of the weekend, I, I, was, I was doing reasonably well. And then at 9 o'clock, I happened to be talking to my wife again, and I walked past the same street sign that I walked past two hours earlier when I was talking to you. Oh, no. <laughs> I'd gone around in this huge circle for two hours, and I was already realising that I'm going a little bit slower than planned, so my, you know, I definitely wasn't going to finish at 2 a.m. It was might, might be 4 a.m., but when I realised I was now two hours behind... I was looking at 6 a.m. I started to get a little bit concerned, you know. I've got no way of, it's the middle of the night. Well, you know, later on it was the middle of the night. And I'm starting to get concerned, you know, it's going to be 6 a.m. at the earliest before I finish. What am I going to do about going to see this client tomorrow? And it's a client I've never (laughs) ever met before. And I was scheduled to be working with them for three consecutive days. I started thinking, well, you know, I could just ring them and say my son's sick and I've got to stay home and, and I could pull a sickie for that day. But, you know, I've been promoting this walk on Facebook and Twitter and the likes, and I thought, you know, what if one of the, the people working for this client knows about my walk? <laughs> I can't really, you know, tell a lie. I, I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I just kept walking. And eventually, I finally got to the Dartford Bridge and finished my walk. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. You know, people were already driving to work. There's, you know, rush hour traffic, etc. And I just finished this underneath this bridge next to a um, sort of trucking company. No fanfare or anything. It's just me because, you know, my support crew had supported me for the first part, but they couldn't support and, you know, I didn't expect them to support me for the last part, given that I was doing it on a, um, on a Monday night. And so I just finished. I um, took a little selfie photo and put that on Facebook to say I'd finished. And then I had to, after that, I actually had to walk back to the car because the closest car park I'd found to where I was going to finish was probably another three or four kilometres away. So I walked back to the car <laughs> and got back there at about 8 o'clock and um, you know, took a little bit of time to recover. It was probably actually closer to 9 o'clock by the time I got back because I had to you know, take a little bit of time to recover after actually finishing the main walk. And so I remember getting in the car and ringing the client who I'd spoke to on you know, sort of Wednesday, Thursday, the week beforehand to, um, to confirm plans for Tuesday morning. And I rang him and I said, um, I'm going to be a little bit late. Um, I said that um, I've just finished walking around the M25. Um, and he sort of fell off his chair perhaps. But um, <laughs> uh, when I explained, I said, you know, I've been doing this walk for charity and I had expected I was going to finish on Sunday night and it's now Tuesday morning. And he was quite understanding. Um, I said, um, yeah, could we postpone today and rather than me coming to see you Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'll come and see you Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
and I was hoping he would say yes, and unfortunately he said, no, one of our staff's going to be away on Friday, so we really need you today um, if you can do it. So I um, said, okay, well, I can be there about one o'clock. Drove home, had a shower, had some breakfast slash lunch, got on the tube and uh, caught the train up to work with a client and ended up doing a more or less a full day there. I didn't leave the client to seven or eight that night and then did three, uh, two more full days there as well. So <laughs> by the end of the week, I was completely exhausted. <laughs> it all turned out all right though with the client oh yeah absolutely and they they fully understand they thought i was a little bit mad but they they fully understood <laughs> that, that things took a bit longer than i expected but they, they didn't have any real concerns and in the total um, yeah. distance i ended up walking the actual m25 walk um, including getting lost ended up being 177 miles um, so about 12 miles more than i expected so it wasn't too bad but um it was definitely an adventure i really enjoyed it I'm going to go back and um, and do it again um, because I do think if I did it in the summer when it was a bit warmer, um, I do think I can do it non-stop and do it in under 48 hours. The actual walking time was 50 hours to do that 177 miles. So if I haven't got lost, I would have walked it in about 48 hours. But it took me 86 hours from the Friday afternoon when I started until the Tuesday morning when I, um, uh, when I finished because I had 36 hours off in the middle. But yeah, I think you know it's it's unfinished business. As far as I'm aware, I'm the third person to walk around the M25, and the other two took a whole week to do it. They walked 20 miles a day. I can't remember; it was a long time ago, about 10 years ago or something. I remember reading something on um, the internet when I did some research about to try and find out if anyone done this walk. So I think I can I can do this walk non-stop, um, and hopefully next summer I'll get an opportunity to try it. Richard, obviously walking that distance is a huge physical strain on your body, um, but mentally it must be really, really challenging as well. You're kind of kind of consistently fighting with, with yourself um, when you get to those points, saying, oh, you should stop now. Do you have those thoughts that go through your head? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I did stop in the end at 34 hours, mm. and I really regret that, that I stopped. But at the time, I, I just, um, you know, I couldn't go any further. And I think it was yeah. more, I mean, I was cold, but it was more mental than physical. Um, and all the long walks I've done, almost all the long walks I've done, I've been fighting more mental demons than physical um, battles during those those long races. Do you have a, a way that you fight them? Is there is this a kind of a technique that you use? Or do you have a bit of self-talk that you get going when you, when you, find those mental demons start to, to kind of come at you it's taken a lot of you know a lot of uh, trial and error to work out to, to try and work out what works but what I have worked is um, worked out is during um, the first few hours of a, um, a long whether it's a training walk or a race I um, listen to podcasts such as as your um, podcast and I listen to all sorts of podcasts um, a lot of sporting ones but a lot of um, business ones and even just sort of other interesting podcasts because it takes your mind off what you're doing and it gives you something to think about and, and gets rid of the boredom um, and then in races what I've done recently is I get to sort of 12 hours into a race and then I switch to sort of high tempo music and I find that that sort of keeps me um, going and if I'm starting to to slow down a song will come on and it'll be something that um, you know, just sort of speeds me up and I use those those high tempo um, songs to 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 keep me going and, and get me, you know, back walking at a reasonable pace. Cool. So you're using kind of external audio stimulus to, to kind of keep you, keep you going um, and to kind of keep your, your mental patterns on track. 
That's right. Although I read this yeah. morning that um, the race I'm doing this weekend, which is a 100-mile race, um, headphones are banned. So oh, no. I'll be walking 24, or actually it will be less than 24 hours, hopefully, but I'll be doing 100 miles with no outside stimulus other than um, you know, fellow competitors. So yeah. we'll, see, we'll see how that one goes. You'll just have to sing to yourself, I think. Oh, no, no one wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, I'm, I'm going to change direction a little bit, mate. Can you tell me about a time that you failed and what you learned from it? You learn from all your failures. Um, and I could say that you know stopping at um, 34 hours in the M25 um, walk was a failure. And, and in a way it was because I didn't achieve what I wanted. But I last year um, I entered a three-day race over in France. I was walking around a one-kilometre circuit um, at a stadium in um, South southeast france um for uh, three days and there was a six-day race on at the same time but i was doing the three-day race and it happened to be a week beginning of august it was actually a year ago today or a year ago tomorrow that um, it, um the race um, started every day it was in the high 30s the highest um, temperature being 39 degrees uh you know, we'd had a reasonable summer up to then but definitely not you know consecutive days in the 30s and um, I really suffered. I had big goals um, for the race. My main goal was to beat the New Zealand record for walking 48 hours, um, which um, was actually and is still a um, fairly easy record in the record books. It's 231 kilometres or was 231 kilometres in 48 hours. And um, I thought I could smash that, actually. I thought I could easily do 270, perhaps, maybe even more. But after less than 12 hours, I was um, actually in bed um, recovering from heat exhaustion. The whole weekend, just the whole weekend, the three days went like that. And I eventually got the 48-hour record by about two kilometres. And I, I basically lost at that stage. I became a zombie, um, if I wasn't already. And I got to 67 hours into the race, and I just couldn't face... I was actually leading the race at that stage, um, but I couldn't face um, another um, five hours. And um, I threw my toys out of the cot, threw a little tantrum went and slept on a, um, a bench in the, um, in the grandstand at the stadium. I wasn't actually that tired and I couldn't sleep, but I just I couldn't face walking around that um, track for another five hours in that hot sun. And um, it was uh, the race had started at 4 p.m. on whatever day of the week it was. So at 67 hours, we had five hours to go. It would have been 11 a.m. and it was going to get really hot over the next four or five hours, and I just I couldn't face it. And every day since, and it's been, as I say, almost a year now, Every day since I've regretted that. I've learned that pain during a race is short term. And if you um, drop out of a race, and I actually learned this many years ago as a teenager when I um, you know, dropped out of races occasionally, you'll regret it. You know, The pain will be there for a little while, but the, um, the fact that you've dropped out um, is something that is there long term. And so now, whenever I'm doing anything that is uncomfortable, for want of you know, another word, and the um, you know the theme of your podcast I just remind myself of those bad times and that you know if I drop out now I'm going to regret it learn from your failures by um, just keeping in mind and remembering what what that failure was and the fact that I could have actually ended up winning that race I finished second but I could have ended up winning that race if I just kept going for that uh, extra five hours and I think that's a that's a, a good lesson to take away from it as well as some um, that yeah, if you if you do drop out, that that pain is is temporary. But as you say, looking back on it, you've 
you've regretted it every day. I read something a while ago, um, uh, and it was related to, to running races. Um, it was, you know, you know, one of these um, uh, images that you see on um, on Facebook where, you know, there's a picture of a runner and then, um, you know, some words written underneath or on top. And it said, um, pain is temporary, pride is forever. And that's pretty much it. You know, I'm, I'm disappointed with that race um, last year. You know, I'm not going to be disappointed with my next race because I'm not going to drop out. Have you applied that to areas of your life other than race walking since you've you've had that lesson? Has it been, have you found some crossover with that or has it just been when you're race walking that you focus, or when you're walking that you're focusing on that? No, um, I mean, ultra distance uh, races, whether it's running races or walking races or any ultra distance, you know, um, events, in a way they are... Um, uh, similar to life it's a a, um, a long-term thing and you know going gets hard in life as well and you don't drop out of life um, well hopefully you know most people don't drop out of life and so yeah you can take what you learn in these sort of um, long distance races and apply them to real life uh, scenarios or situations as well Richard what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it well, the last uncomfortable thing is um, I'm training for a big race coming up. And as a result of that, I work a, a full-time job, 40-plus hours a week. So my long training walks have to be done on the weekend. And not last weekend, but the weekend before that, I had to do six hours on Saturday and six and a half hours on Sunday or vice versa, which meant getting up at 5 o'clock in both mornings and being out walking by 6 a.m. You know, most people, um, and definitely me, when I um, don't have to to go out for long training walks you know it's nice to have a lie-in on a Saturday or a Sunday but uh, you know at the moment I can't remember the last time I slept on yeah so uncomfortable perhaps but I've got a um, I've got a goal and another thing I remember seeing on Facebook um, a while ago is um, every morning you have two choices either continue to sleep with your dreams or wake up and chase them and that is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm living an uncomfortable life because I've got some big dreams and some big goals. Awesome. I, I like that one, actually. So, Richard, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? Well, actually, the next uncomfortable thing I'm going to do is tomorrow I'm walking 70 miles. I, I said I've got a 100-mile race this weekend, and everything I'm doing this year is focused on a race that I'm going to tell you about in a moment in October. But uh, tomorrow, just to to make things uncomfortable, and to we're talking about mental, um, uh, you know, men, the mental game earlier. I'm training myself mentally to put myself in this, uh, these uncomfortable positions. And so the race I'm doing in the weekend is up in a place called Redcar, which is 70 miles north of Leeds. And I've never actually been to Leeds, and I've never been to Redcar. Um, tomorrow I'm going to walk between the two. Um, so I'm catching train up early morning up to Leeds. And then I'm going to walk for probably around 15, 16 hours through to um, to Redcar, have a few hours sleep, and then I'm doing a 100-mile race. So that's the next, very next thing that I'm going to do that's uncomfortable. But uh, moving forward, um, my goal and everything that I've been doing this year is focused on going back to this town called Previs in France, where I did the three-day race last year, and doing the six-day race. So walking around this one-kilometer circuit for six days and reminding myself, what it was like last year when I dropped out after 67 hours. Um, that's definitely not going to happen. Um, I've got a goal of beating the New Zealand record for both 500 kilometres and for the most distance walked in six days, which is 622 kilometres, I think. 
Um, and I actually believe I can I can do 700 kilometres, perhaps more. World record for six days is 752 kilometres. I don't know that I can go quite that far, but I, I think I can do 700 kilometres. And um, and so that's you know definitely going to put me out of my comfort zone. That's an outstanding goal to have, and I think that's that would definitely pretty much everyone that I can think of, and definitely a lot of people that I can't. I'm sure that would put them out of, outside their comfort zones as well. Actually, I don't know anyone that would be comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I've done the training, and that's what I am focusing on this year. Is when I get to the start line, I will have done the training. I'll be the fittest I've ever been in my life. It will be uncomfortable, and there'll be you know times where I'll be right down in the dumps, but then there'll be other times when I'm feeling fantastic during that six days, and I don't have to go to work for six days. So, you know, um, I've got a, a, a week where I don't need to think about anything at all. I don't need to think about what I'm going to have for dinner. I don't need to think about, you know, my family. Well, I will be thinking about my family, but I don't need to worry about what they're doing or anything like that. The whole um, uh, week is focused on me walking around a track and I'll have a fantastic support team that will be looking after me. Um, I think it's going to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. And Richard, if people want to follow along with your with your journey on this and kind of your your build up, where can they where can they go to to check that out? Um, I have a blog, um, RichardWalksLondon.com. On that blog, I've got links to both my Twitter account and my Facebook um, account. And also, if people are interested in reading more about the M25 walk or any of my other walks, they're all um, written. You know, posted on my blog. Um, there's a little search button up the top where they can type in M25, for instance, and it'll pull up the um, the uh, post about my um, you know walk around the M25. Um, during the actual six-day walk, and even you know the other training walks I've got between now and then, I'll um, be posting on um, Facebook fairly regularly. Probably Twitter not as much. Um, I do use Twitter occasionally, but I'm I'm not definitely not a, a big Twitter person compared with Facebook. So, yeah, that's probably the best place to start with my blog and, and go from there. Cool. And I'll put links in the, in the notes for the episode as well so that people can find you there. Um, and also, Richard, we've, we've had a bit of a chat as well that it would be very cool to um, do a little bit of recording with you as you're going through your training and also have a chat to you a couple of times while you're in the race um, and then put put that together as a podcast um, just after you're finished. So I, I'm pretty excited about how you go with this and um, and kind of being able to kind of come along with you kind of vicariously. I couldn't walk 700Ks at the moment, um, so I'm, I'm glad that I get to tag along with you, but without putting in the hard yards there. Yeah, no, I think that'd be really neat, and... Um, the- you know, the idea of um, you and I speaking while I'm actually doing the um, the walk, I'll be interested myself just to, to listen to that and see how I deteriorate over those <laughs> six days. <laughs> so, you know, if we talk on the first day, I'm sure I'm going to be really positive and, um, and then you might get me on a day where, you know, I've struggled for the last six or seven hours and I'm feeling really down in the dumps and, and yeah, it'll be, it'll be quite an interesting podcast to listen to afterwards. It will be. It'll be a little bit of a scientific experiment, I think, and maybe I should uh, maybe I should have a chat with a few uh, few scientists and physiologists to, uh, to to see if they want to have a listen to it as well. Um, but no, it's, it's pretty exciting. 
But the um, other thing is, you know, it might sound a bit strange, the fact that I'm going to walk around this track for um, uh, for six days. There are actually 170 people um, entered in this race, um, most of them runners. Last year, the field was limited to 140, I think, and there were 20 walkers and 120 runners. I don't know what the breakdown is this year. But, you know, finding 170 people that want to race around a track for six days um yeah <laughs> there's a lot of mad people out there not just me yeah, well you'll be in good company then yeah. that's right so richard I, I think that that sounds good to kind of set the scene for the for the next one def, definitely but before we uh before we let you go do you have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave uh, me and the listeners with Oh, that's a question that you didn't um, pre-warn me about, did you? <laughs> I didn't. No, no, no. I, I don't like to pre-warn people about that one, actually. I've listened to your podcasts, and I, I, I must admit I listen to your podcasts when I'm out training, so I may, might not be 100% focused, but I don't remember you asking this question to anyone else. Um, can, can, can I get you to repeat that question, sorry? Yeah, sure thing. Um, do you have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave uh, me and the listeners with? Never run with scissors um, is, is one uh, uh, one thing that people should always uh, take into mind. <laughs> but um, never give up. Um, you know, as we've discussed, I've, I've given up a couple of times and I regret it. Um, you know, never give up. Cool. Both very, very good uh, points you make there. Uh, but thanks very much for your time today, Richard. It's been cool to have a chat. And as I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to keeping on talking to you over the next couple of months. Um, and hopefully we'll have something really great for, for people to have a listen to uh, at, the, at the end of October. No, thanks. It's been good. I've, I've enjoyed uh, having an opportunity to talk about my adventures.